Repentant Bible Study. We're going through the book of 1 Peter together. Um, if you have a Bible, I'm going to be using the English Standard Version. Uh, if you don't have that, we actually have cell phone coverage here. Uh, so you can look up esv.org, and we will be in 1 Peter. Um, there's also an app you can grab. But our goal over the next five Wednesdays is to go through this entire book. Um, to get a sense of it verse by verse, uh, theme by theme, uh, and it's a good size for us to wrestle with. It's only five chapters, and we have five weeks because we're pretty good at math. Um, that's good. Um, and tonight, what we're going to work on is the introductory first three verses and then the next 12, so kind of the first half of First uh, Peter chapter 1. And um, if you notice the image right here, this is an image of uh, St. Peter's martyrdom. You may know the story um, that Peter, who was the apostle who denied Jesus, knowing him three times, uh, later was martyred for his faith and asked to be crucified upside down. Didn't find his manner of life, said, I can't get uh, executed the same way my Lord did because of how I've lived. So there's all these incredible artwork of Peter uh, being crucified upside down. And I bring that up because this particular book of the Bible, we see uh, both the church, um, they're under increasing persecution, hostility, pressure. Um, and I think there's a lot for us to learn from this book. Um, so I'm just calling this faith under pressure. Um, one scholar has pointed out that Christians all over the world are posturing themselves over against their culture, their society, their local community with its leaders, the world as they perceive it, um, reading the internet, listening to news broadcasts, watching TV reports, sitting in sessions, researching trends, going, how in the world do we live responsibly in the day in which we've been given? Um, and if you think about it, what we're going to see um, is that Peter gives us some guidance to what you do uh, in the midst of pressure. Um, Peter, they were, he was preparing them for real legit persecution. And I like to say, if you're going to talk about persecution, the definition of persecution is it involves blood. Um, so we need to be kind of careful how we throw that term around because we have uh, brothers and sisters around the world who are facing uh, persecution for their faith. Um, but there's certainly pressure, there's side looks, there's um, hostility that we experience, there's ways that we're misunderstood and I think Peter gives us a grid for how we think about that and how we live responsibly in light of that and the first thing Peter's going to do and what we get to look at tonight which is great is he's going to root them in the salvation they have in Christ because for Peter if you're not rooted deeply in the love that God has for you and the salvation you have in Christ how in the world are you going to withstand anything that's difficult in this present age. So um, we start with these first three verses. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, and I'm going to be a little interactive. Tell me what you know about Peter besides what we've shared already. What do we know about Peter? Fisherman. fisherman. Yeah, Peter was a fisherman. Blue collar guy, for sure. What else? Called Cephas, yeah, he was eventually given the nickname Rock or Rocky. Um, and it both refers to uh, how steadfast he could be and probably how stubborn um, he could be as well. 
What else do you know about Peter from the from the Gospels or from the Book of Acts? Impulsive. Yeah. Impulsive. Yep. There's a little kid's book. They have a campus view called Hothead, <laughs> and it's about Peter, the Hothead. Um, what else do we know about this guy? Walked on water for a bit. Yeah. He walked on water about as long as we had soup tonight. That's good. <laughs> um, other things we know about Peter. Married. Yep, married. Good, good. Traveled to Rome. Traveled to Rome. Yep, that did not go well for him. Um, this letter actually... What's that? Denied three times. Denied Jesus three times. Yeah. Um, this particular letter, this five-chapter letter at the end, Peter says he's writing from Babylon, um, which we would say is probably he's reached Rome. And so he's using that as kind of a stand-in for, uh, for Rome. Anything else we know about Peter? He's sort of the leader of the Twelve, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, so we've kind of listed his greatest uh, foibles in many ways. Um, but he emerges out of the Gospels as a leader. And so on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2 comes, and he's immediately uh, the spokesman of the 12. He's a major, major leader uh, in the Jerusalem church. And one thing you notice is a lot of letters in the New Testament, um, they actually have a long defense of being an apostle. Paul frequently has to say, hey, I'm an apostle. Here's what I've done. Here's what I've not done. Peter's like, you know who I am. Like, he's well-known. He's well-regarded. Um, his leadership is clear um, to the point like our Roman Catholic friends have just put him way up a little bit higher than we would. That's Peter, um, this, this man. Um, and he's a very interesting mix of, I think, impulsiveness and faithfulness. Um, and the other curious thing is to know that if he's saying this is from Peter, um, an apostle of Jesus, then this letter is not just, you know, the pious opinion of a friend. This is the authoritative word of one speaking uh, for the Lord of the church himself. He's speaking on behalf of Jesus. And he's speaking words of both comfort and challenge. Uh, verse 1 continues to tell us who he is writing to. And it's an odd phrase. It says, to those who are elect exiles. Um, anyone have another translation that has anything different than that? Temporary residents, you might hear uh, resident aliens. Strangers. Strangers, yep, chosen strangers. Um, living as foreigners, yeah, elect exiles. It's a very interesting mix of terms. And that you have this idea that you, Christians, you church who he's writing to, you have been called out, um, you have been set apart, uh, you've been set apart for a purpose, and yet you are exiles and strangers and aliens. You don't quite know where you fit anymore in light of uh, the gospel. Um, I'm going to introduce you to several of my conversation partners for First Peter. One is this guy, Bishop N.T. Wright. Maybe you've heard of him. <laughs> Here's how he refers. He says, we are people as Christians, elect exiles, who by the mercy of God have been chosen for a particular purpose. All Christians live a strange double life. And that Peter addresses his audience as uh, exiles, foreigners. Um, and that's not because they've immigrated to where they live, but because they have a dual citizenship. They're simultaneously inhabitants of, you know, wherever they live um, and citizens of God's new world. Um, and I think what's interesting to see is that many would say, uh, well, well, we'll get here in just a moment, but... 
Um, who does it say he's writing to? Where are these Christians located? If you've got verse 1. Turkey. Turkey, yeah, modern Asia Minor. Um, this is uh, the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Um, what's really interesting about this list um, is you've heard of some of these churches, right? Where have you heard about of them? Wait, wait, I heard, okay, two, yeah, two good answers. One is the book of Revelation. Um, the other is some of these were churches that the Apostle Paul himself planted and got started. Um, and so here's an interesting theory that a lot of people have, and it's an interesting question. Why is Peter writing to Paul's churches? Doesn't, doesn't he, I forget if it's first or second Peter, but doesn't he kind of correct or point out that there's some misunderstanding? Yeah, well, he says there's some things Paul there's some things that Paul wrote that are kind of tricky, y'all. <laughs> I think he makes us all feel at ease when we enter the New Testament and go, "What is happening here?" To know that even Peter said, "We don't know what's always happening." Um, yeah, that's part of it, um, and definitely in another book of the Bible, Galatians, uh, Paul and Peter got at loggerheads over um, essentially who gets to be in the family and how do we treat one another in the family. Um, I came across, I just thought this was interesting, this idea this week, um, that the presenting issue for Peter writing to these churches was very likely the death of Paul. That persecution had gotten turned up to the point that the Apostle Paul was put to death. The church is trying to figure out what do we do with this, what do we think about this, things are getting weird, and Peter is writing to both reassure really some of these folks kind of on the fringes. Like if you were one of the main places, you know, Philippi, Rome, you probably were in the, the information uh, loop. Um, if you're out here, you probably don't know what's going on. You've just heard, oh my gosh, the guy who founded this thing got put to death. And you're probably wondering, what does that mean for me? What's that mean for our future? What's that mean for uh, our movement? So one of the first things that Peter reassures them is that uh, you are elect exiles. You are resident aliens. Uh, you have received God's grace, and he has a purpose for you. Um, and what's interesting is if you look at this region of Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey today, it's just clear that the gospel took root primarily amongst kind of the dregs of society. Um, those who were lower in social standing, um, those who were excited about a movement who said, um, it doesn't matter if you're male, female, uh, Greek, Jew, slave free, we're all one in Christ Jesus. They were like, that sounds great. Um, usually the people at the bottom like that news a lot better than those at the top. <laughs> so there's a level playing field at the cross. Um, the other thing to know is that this term dispersion um, gives a little bit of a Jewish flavor to this letter. Um, at the time, you would talk about the Jewish diaspora, those Jews who have been spread abroad. Uh, there were millions of Jews who were living outside of Israel um, at the time of Jesus. Um, and by referring to these Christians as the dispersion, the diaspora, um, I don't think it means that they were all Jewish. 
It means that they've been brought into the story of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've been brought into the story of the Messiah. So he's using this term. You two have been dispersed. Um, it's likely some of them could have been associated with Judaism. They might have known something of it, but they are likely uh, Gentiles. And it's likely that persecution is on its way. Um, uh, one of the major persecutions was under Nero. If you look up Nero on Wikipedia, it's not good, right? You know that? Um, he's, he's a bad dude. He's pretty crazy. Um, he set his city on fire and blamed it on Christians <laughs> as, as the scapegoat. Um, so that's who he is writing to. Um, these Christians disperse in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Asia, which is Asia Minor, and uh, Bithynia. And then look at verse 2. Um, again, we're going to go a little bit slowly through this part. Um, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling uh, with his blood. Just pause for a moment. What do you notice about verse 2? Trinity. Trinity. Um, we'll often talk about the fact that there is not a chapter and verse that gives us our doctrine of the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, that doesn't mean it's not biblical. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that we don't see it clearly rooted in the scriptures. And this is when we tend to see it. Is some of these places where um, Peter lays out here the work of the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. Or places where Paul writes and we see, oh, he views the spirit, the Son uh, divinely, just like the Father. What do we, how do we make sense of that? Um, and the church does kind of, you know, we have to work on it in the church to get our doctrine of the Trinity. But it is rooted in the scriptures, not something made up later or made up after the apostles. And so we see this time and time again, this kind of Trinitarian formula, or this, this shape of how they do things. Um, it's not just because Peter's a preacher and looking for three points. <laughs> um, though we tend to like that, right? We like little three-point things. But according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling uh, with his blood. Um, let's dig into that a little bit. By the way, this uh, is actually a piece of art by Mako Fujimura uh, called The Trinity. Um, and it's actually, this is done, it's this old... Uh, Japanese artistic style where they use pigment and attach it to the canvas, uh, which is kind of cool. So if you know any of his stuff, Mako Fujimura, um, he's in New York, was actor, active with Tim Keller and his church up there. Um, and the only bad thing is if you take and put pigment on canvas, do you remember when New York got that like hurricane thing a couple years ago? It actually washed out a lot of his art. Um, it was in a warehouse there, like, kind of but according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, um, this is one of those verses that uh, can get Christians arguing with one another and can split churches <laughs> and can lead to all kinds of stuff. And uh, I think it's because what, when we say the foreknowledge of God the Father, what comes to mind? Predestination. The big P word, predestination, does come to mind for many. Yep. Um, <laughs> any other thoughts? I like that, Ian. What do you think? What does four not literally? What would this literally mean? You know ahead of time, right? Um, and someone said, well, God's will is effective when it's known, and therefore we get to um, a more reformed understanding of theology. 
Um, Anglicans are lightly reformed, where we'll go up to here and they say, I don't know how that all works. Um, my Presbyterian friends, they know how it all works. Uh, who knows? Um, but I will say, when I think about uh, this term, um, the foreknowledge of God the Father, there are two things that are clear when I think about the salvation we have and what Peter wants to communicate. Um, one is to know um, that you have not sat there in a trance and reached out and magically found God. Whether he was always seeking you and ready to be found. And the second is to know God as Father. To know his love poured out upon us. Um, Father Bill, you might know, is teaching uh, Western Religion 101 at UGA right now. And he was just saying, as he looks at the various religious systems in the world, it is um, striking how Christianity bears the idea that God loves us. And we actually see that God loves us because of what he's done in Jesus. He said, as he's surveying these other religions, um, you don't see the involvement of deity. You don't see the love of deity. You don't see the care of deity. That's unique within uh, the Christian story, this term father. Um, the next thing he talks about is the sanctification of the spirit. Sanctification means uh, to make holy, uh, to make righteous, to set apart. Um, Soren Kierkegaard, who is a philosopher, existentialist, says, God creates out of nothing. Wonderful, you say, yes, to be sure, but he does what is still more wonderful. He makes saints out of sinners. That's the work of sanctification. Um, that God has set people aside so that they can be signposts to the new reality of what he's done in and through Jesus. Um, the word sanctification, I think we can again kind of stumble over. Because we like to fight. And we can take a, a book like this and just fight on every phrase and clause and verse. But what we would say is not, we don't just receive the love of the Father, but that the Holy Spirit is poured out and active in our midst. Setting us apart from sin, setting us apart for righteousness. Filling us and empowering us to live and respond correctly and these believers are going to need to know the work of the Spirit in their life because of the pressure and persecution that they have coming their way. Um, there's a South African New Testament scholar, Peter Davids, who says the Spirit does not just clean up an old life. It introduces a person to a whole new life, making him or her holy. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit, for he has the character of God. And since the distinctive mark of the New Testament is his personal dwelling in the people of God, they will also become holy. Um, the way I think about this is in the Old Testament, where did God's presence reside? Primarily. Where's that? The temple. The temple is where you would go to meet with God. Um, when God's presence filled the temple, you saw this fire come from heaven and this glory fills the temple. And the teaching of the New Testament is that we together are the temple of the living God. That he has sent the Spirit to fill and indwell us in the same way um, with his personal presence and that tangible reality. Um, by the way, that's why if you read in the Bible, you, your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's not an adage to work out. I mean, you can't. It's great to pursue physical fitness. Um, 
But it's letting you know, like, you are a walking around on two legs temple together with your fellow believers. God is dwelling in your midst in the same way. And Peter wants them to make sure that they know the work of the Spirit in their life. And then he tells us, here's why all this is taking place. Um, it says, uh, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Um, we're set apart to follow Jesus. Um, we've been cleansed by Jesus. Um, God has done something in their midst and called forth a response. They would follow in the way of the Messiah. And he says, we've been sprinkled with the blood. That's, that's Old Testament imagery again. Um, sprinkled with the blood. There's a, it's kind of a, it's kind of a gross thing, honestly. But like after the law is given at Mount Sinai, um, they come down and they say, hey, people whom God has redeemed, here is God's will for you as a people. Um, you can do this and you'll live. You can do this and you won't. What do you choose? And they say, we'll take life. And they actually sprinkle blood over uh, the people. Um, can you imagine if we did that on a Sunday? <laughs> you would freak out. If we like came in, oh, and you're like, man, I got to dry clean that. How's that going to get out? Um, worshiping God was serious business. Part of the way you knew you were dealing with something serious was this bloody uh, aspect of the Old Testament, how God would worship. Um, the blood is sprinkled over the people. Um, it's the same way that in the book of Exodus, the Passover lamb, their blood is sprinkled over the doorposts. And then in the New Testament, we have the work of Jesus, the Lamb of God, and his blood sprinkled over the doorposts of um, our lives and our hearts. Um, <laughs> I was uh, looking back at a story. Do you remember when, uh, I, I know that right now there's a, there's a big Jesus movie in the theaters. Um, I always don't know what to think when there's a big Jesus movie in the theaters. Um, but uh, when I was first in uh, ministry, um, The Passion of the Christ came out. This was a big deal. Do y'all remember this? Yeah. Passion of the Christ came out. Mel Gibson had made this film. Um, and like, it's pretty rough. Like, it's kind of a rough watch. Um, and there was some controversy because in Italy... Uh, when it was released, it was given a G rating. <laughs> like, bring your two-year-old. We're going to watch The Crucifixion. Um, by the way, I do know now that all we were watching was The Stations of the Cross. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what the, the movie is. Um, but they had one uh, critic at the time. And uh, he said, you know, I'm not going to let my kids see this movie. Because I want them to have this idea of the spirituality of Jesus, not this uh, debauchery. The soul of Jesus is important, um, not his body. And he said he would rather his kids watch a movie, a 30-year-old film called The Gospel According to Matthew. So that film is very deep, and you don't see a drop of blood. It's sanitized. It's clean. And again, I'm not saying, like, I actually don't, I have a weak stomach. I struggle with movies that are super bloody. Um, but, like, there's a visceral reality to our faith um, that actually happened. The, the first time I saw that movie, it was actually pretty cool. We were, uh, I was on Young Life staff at the time. And about every four years, they get all of their staff together worldwide. And so we had all gathered. We were in Orlando, like 5,000 people. And we didn't know what was happening. They just said, hey, come, we've got a treat for you tonight. 
And the next thing we knew, they released, it was like a pre-release cut of The Passion of the Christ. Um, and we watched it through. It was in kind of a more of a reflective setting. There weren't like popcorn and candy and, you know, um, like a theater. Uh, and actually the, the film ended and the actor who played Jim Cav- uh, Jesus, Jim Caviezel, he actually came out to the podium, the white light show. Like, we got the resurrection in our version. <laughs> it was great. And he told us all about what it meant to play Jesus and what it had meant for his faith. And, uh, I mean, I, I know many people, that was a, a pivotal turning point for them. Um, and I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not saying go take your kids to see the Passion of the Christ. Do not hear me on that. Uh, I'm saying just this idea that we're sprinkled with his blood just reminds us there's a gritty realness to this. Um, It's not all, you know, pure and sanitized. Um, Sacrifice is not sanitized. It's always been bloody. And that's part of the point is that a real human died a real death for you and me and really rose from the dead. Um, Our faith rests on that. Um, That's not something we fudge. Uh, actually, I came across, there was a, do you know who Christopher Hitchens is? Oh, yeah. Christopher Hitchens was a well-known uh, atheist, and he was being interviewed by this um, lady in, I think she was in Oregon. Her name's Marilyn Sewell. And she was just a very, um, I would say probably, a, she would call herself a progressive Christian. I would say she had probably gone progressed past the bounds of anything uh, creedal. And I'm, I don't use that, like, I don't use terms like, you know, liberal and her, but, like, she's pretty far past it. Um, and they were having an interview. And it was interesting because she was interviewing Christopher Hitchens, who had uh, re- released a book questioning the Christian faith and why he had no reason to have faith in this religion or this God. And uh, Marilyn Sewell pointed out to him, the religion you cite in your book is, is generally, you know, a, a kind of a backwards version of faith of various kinds. Um, she said, you know, I, I'm, I'm more liberal. I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. Um, I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement. For example, that Jesus died for our sins or that we needed that. She said, do you make any distinction between this kind of backwards faith and a more progressive, enlightened form of Christianity? It's a fair question, right? Um, and there's times to kind of bring this question to bear. There are times where you will meet someone, they'll say, I'm not a Christian. Tell me about that. Well, I don't believe in, and they'll list the kind of God they don't believe in. And you can probably say, I don't believe in that God either. Because <laughs> it's a straw man. It's, it's not a real thing. But then she's going, hey, wait a minute. Have you made a straw man out of me? And Christopher Hitchens said, I would say, if you don't believe that Jesus was the Christ and Messiah, that he rose from the dead, and by his sacrifice, your sins are forgiven, Um, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. And that's one of the leading atheists of the last 20, 30 years. Um, Just kind of, this isn't something we can just kind of wash away or think away. Um, It's Lent, so we can kind of get gritty during the season of Lent. Um, But then what does he tell them? May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Very simple. We see this throughout the New Testament. Grace and peace. Uh, grace being a traditional Greco-Roman way of extending um, well wishes. Uh, peace, shalom being more of a Jewish way of saying, uh, here's what has happened. One of the church fathers, Basil the Great, says, May it be granted to us after we have struggled nobly 
and subdued the spirit of the flesh, which was at enmity with God, when our soul is in a calm and tranquil state to be called the children of peace and to share the blessing of God in peace, rest, shalom, wholeness. That's what he wants to multiply to these folks who are about to undergo a trial, about to undergo something very, very difficult. So let's walk through this next section. We're going to move a little quicker. I just want to kind of key in on some of those, uh, like I said, when I see the Trinity in the Bible, like we got to pause. <laughs> kind of talk about the trinity look at what he's going to tell them he's going to tell them all about the salvation they have found uh in jesus uh, verses three and four uh, blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven uh, for you so again, he starts the first few verses. Here's who you are, your identity. Now he's going to talk about what has done, what has happened to make you who you are. So if you are this people being redeemed by the triune God, how has that happened? What has occurred to make that possible? And he's going to lean on the great mercy of God um, who has been at work in their lives through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, N.T. Wright points out the best way of talking about God and what he's done is praise. Not simply description. And praise is what Peter now offers. May God be praised because of his mercy. Um, he has done this work in our lives. Um, put up some images here. Who knows what this is from? Yeah, the prodigal son. Um, these are actually three versions of the parable of the prodigal son, all from Rembrandt. Um, three different versions. And what's really interesting is um, that this is him. You know the story in Luke 15. The prodigal comes to his father. Hey, can I have my inheritance? And he goes and wastes it in reckless and wild living. That's the prodigal with his wild living. Um, and it's a, it's a self-portrait of the painter. He's put his face right there. Um, and then what's beautiful is he's also put his face right here, which is his first rendition of when the prodigal returns home and finds love and forgiveness from his father. Um, and then this is the one that a lot of people know pretty well. Um, this is in the Hermitage in Russia. It's this huge, I mean, it's like the size of this wall. Uh, but depiction of the prodigal. Um, it's just this reminder in this story, if you know the story of the prodigal son, um, you know, he essentially in the parable, he has wronged his father. He has insulted his father. He has done everything to essentially say, I wish you were dead. Can I have my money? When he returns, what would you think that would be met with? Um, how would you feel if someone, I mean, we've got some parents in the room. If your kids came to you, hey, thanks for everything you've done. Um, if I could just get a check and cash out. That's what he does. Um, what he finds is the father waiting, the father running and extending mercy. And uh, when I think of the definition of mercy, mercy is just not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Um, 
Um, and again, if you're a parent, you know how this works. You have a, you know, something your child's supposed to do. Um, we had one of these in the past week, which was, uh, if once again we're late for school, there's a consequence in the afternoon. Now, in our house, this is like a repeated thing. Uh, but we're not ready for school uh, when it's time to be ready for school. And so we've kind of talked about why to be on time, and we've kind of escalated the consequences. Um, and uh, for our daughter, when she gets home off the bus, hey, here's a snack. Hey, relax for a little bit before we start homework, this kind of thing. Um, well, her consequences, if you are not ready on time, there is no relaxing with a show when you get home. Now, this is tragic if you're 10. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so this week, uh, we had a day, uh, I guess it was last week, where um, it, she was late for school. And she was late by about two minutes. And we held to, sorry. You can think I'm a bad parent, it's okay. Um, hey, we have this and it's to help train you. And what we're trying to do, like there's gonna be no, no show. Like it's literally a 20 minute thing. Like it's not the end of the world. You would have thought it was the end of the world. Um, and I felt for it because she said, hey, you don't understand. I know that's the rule. And so I actually set two different alarms so I could snooze them. <laughs> but I accidentally turned it off. <laughs> And we're like, that's so great that you tried so hard and it still didn't work. Um, now, a good parent would have maybe extended mercy, <laughs> maybe extended grace. Um, that wasn't what the moment called for. Um, and again, I say that really trivially because at a much larger level, God has told us what is good and right and what will make for flourishing. And time and again, we do what we shouldn't and don't do what we should. Um, and again, there's a training in righteousness as we grow and mature. But ultimately, what we find, even in the midst of us not measuring up, is this, mercy and grace. Um, a father who, even when we have missed it time and time and time and time again, um, is ready for us to come home and welcomes us uh, when we do. Again, if you don't have that kind of rootedness, um, what do you do when temptation comes? What do you do when hardship comes, when pressure? Goodness, if persecution actually came, I don't, I don't know how we would handle that. Um, I think it would be, it would be pretty difficult. Um, there was a fifth century bishop named Hillary, which is just fun because we don't get named guys Hillary anymore. But Hillary says, Peter means here that God has acted to redeem us without any help from us. His mercy is great enough to be able to forgive every sin which has been committed in thought, word, and deed from the beginning to the end of the world. Now look, he roots this in the resurrection of Jesus. Um, for the New Testament, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that changes everything. Now for Peter, it's certainly the resurrection of Jesus that changes all kinds of things. Because of this mercy, uh, God our Father has made us into a people. Peter says he's caused us to be born again. Um, and don't stumble over that if you've got some weird little Baptist jumping around in your head when I say born again. Um, I'm going to preach on John 3 this Sunday. We're going to talk more about uh, being born again. 
But uh, Peter says he accomplishes this through the resurrection of Jesus uh, from the dead. Um, and again, I, don't, I know we have lots of different church backgrounds uh, in our congregation. Um, when I grew up, you might as well not have had the resurrection. You would only have the cross. Um, I don't know if that's similar to anyone else, where all you focused on was the cross. All you focused on was the penalty for sin. There was no sense of it. And look, Jesus was raised and ushers us into new life uh, and victory. But this is, again, one of the crazy things we believe. Like, we actually think that someone who was really dead then really wasn't. Um, and, and I've heard some people say, like, well, you know, we know people who are dead don't rise from the dead. I'm like, yeah, they knew that in the first century, too. <laughs> this, I mean, like, we've had a lot of advances in technology and science and medicine. Um, this is not one of the new understandings we have, that dead people stay dead. I mean, if anything, in the first century, you were much more aware of this than we are. Um, you didn't have, you know, funeral services and thing, you know, things that we think are, are pretty standard um, that kind of remove this from our purview and kind of what we focus on. Um, everyone would have been very familiar with death. You would have had family members die in your house. You would have had these horrific executions um, all over the place, just telling you, "Hey, stay in line." Don't mess with Rome, because if you step out of line, we can do whatever we want with you. See, look what we did to these people on the crosses. That's what that is. Um, the death of Jesus. There are, I've, I've said this before, there are really efficient ways to put someone to death, and crucifixion is not one. Um, that's execution with a message. And the message attached is don't mess with Rome. Stay in line. Don't do it this way. And so it's even more shocking that we would see the resurrection of Jesus spring forth from that. Uh, if this community really is going to have persecution in their midst, don't they need to understand that the worst thing that we would think could happen to us being put to death happened to Jesus, and it wasn't the worst thing at all? It actually brought our salvation. <laughs> and it wasn't the final or last word either, because resurrection came. Peter trying to root them in that so that they have a perspective to... Uh, think about the pressure and persecution that's coming. Um, <laughs> uh, Eugene Peterson, anyone know Eugene Peterson? I always call him the guy who wrote the Bible because he wrote the message, which is not really the Bible, but you get the point. Um, Presbyterian minister says that the do-it-yourself self-help culture of North America uh, has so thoroughly permeated our imaginations, we don't give much sustained attention to resurrection. And the reason that we don't give resurrection much attention is it's not something we can manipulate or control or improve on. He says that's why it's interesting that our culture has had very little success commercializing Easter the way it has Christmas. Um, if you've ever seen the Hopped movie, you'll know how bad Easter movies can be if you commercialize this. Um, because resurrection is just this amazing thing that happened that we don't know what to do with. The fact that someone was dead and then was, I guess, you know, there's the, we would say Herod uh, went down into to Hades, but then was brought back to life. That's wild. That's not Lazarus. Lazarus was dead and then he was brought back to life. And then what happened? He died again. He died again. 
Paul says Jesus was raised from the dead never to die again. Death no longer has any dominion over him. And it means that for the follower of Jesus, death no longer has final word over us either. Our prayer book actually asks, there's a prayer that says, Lord, may we see in death uh, the gateway to eternal life. It's still an enemy, but it's a defeated enemy, and it becomes a pathway into um, eternal life. And so he says, we are now living uh, full of hope. There's an inheritance. Uh, (laughs) This part where it talks about an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Um, The best illustration I've ever heard of this is not a good Lenten illustration. It's from Bishop N.T. Wright. <laughs> I don't, should I share this? Yeah, I'm going to share this. Um, <laughs> he, he, has, he would say that when we think about uh, heaven and earth, God created the heavens and the earth, right? The earth is everything we see. The heavens are this unseen realm, essentially. It's where God is. is what does it mean that our inheritance is kept there? that it's undefiled, that it is imperishable, that it is unfading. And N.T. Wright, good British Oxford Don that he is, says this is like the beer fridge in your garage. (laughs) It's kind of outside the home, and it's out here, and there's something in there, and we're keeping it safe for you. (laughs) That's all I got. So... (laughs) This is uh, N.T. Wright. But he says, no, he, he does go on to say, the reason he really likes that illustration is that one day heaven and earth are going to be joined. And there's going to be feasting and there's going to be rejoicing. And you better crack open that fridge because God has come down to dwell with us forever. That's the great living hope that we have. Again, that's where if someone comes and wants you to, call, you know, you have pressure and persecution, he's rooting them in what God has done for them, and what expectation they have uh, in the Lord. Um, he keeps going through here, verse uh, 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7, So the the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8. Fantastic. This is one of those you can memorize, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Very, very interesting here. Um, According to Peter, uh, suffering is something that can help us grow in our faith. According to Peter, suffering is something that God can use uh, for our benefit. Um, and for Peter, suffering is something that is not forever. It has a time and it will pass away. Um, this is, again, one of those things that when you look at other religions, um, they don't always know what to do with suffering. Um, 
usually what it, when you look at suffering, you just say, let's just pretend that's not real or it's not happening. And we do that in our own Christian ways too in churches. <laughs> uh, Peter says, no, suffering is very real. Um, and it's painful and it's hard and it raises questions. And one of the questions should be, how can God use this? And how is God using this? And can I have faith to see that in this trial, God could be growing me? And then can I rest knowing that it won't be forever? Um, one uh, one uh, preacher of the last century said that a realist is an idealist who has gone through the fire and been purified. A skeptic is an idealist who has gone through the fire and been burned. <laughs> How do we respond? How is God at work uh, in our lives? Um, it's very, very interesting. And I think when I look at this, uh, it's it really funny. I, I was reading lots of commentaries on this, um, lots of people trying to figure out, you know, what do we do with this? And they would say, hey, one thing that we need to be clear on is that they're expecting, again, pretty severe persecution. Um, and we can't just, like, pretend that means that people are going to make fun of us or, you know, look at us sideways. And it's not that pressure is not real. Pressure is, is real. It's terrible. But it's not persecution. I mean, we've got to kind of just think through how we use this language. But if you were to undergo real persecution, if you were to, un, you know, endure suffering for the sake of glory, well, that follows the pattern of Jesus, right? That follows the way of Jesus. And what's particularly unique about the suffering of our Lord is that it's completely unjust. He doesn't deserve it at all. And so many of the scholars who work on this say, by the way, if you experience pressure or, God forbid, persecution, um, make sure it's for, <laughs> for being a Christian, not being a jerk. <laughs> like, think through, like, what in your life is, um, is provoking this pressure and offense? Is it uh, your profession of Jesus or something uh, different? Suffering can honor Christ if we're suffering for doing right uh, rather than for doing wrong. And then here's what's interesting is verses 10 through 12. Uh, he's, again, he's encouraging them just to stand firm in what's happening. Uh, verse 10. He just wants to know them how amazing their salvation is. He says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Verse 12, it was revealed to them they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you. Through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Just says, like, do you realize what God has done in Christ? Do you realize the entire Old Testament, they were longing and waiting for this to be revealed, and now you've seen it. Now you've experienced it. Now you've tasted it. Now you've been born again into a living hope. And God is at work. Uh, in your life. All right, we are doing good on time. Um, if you want to really get an overview of this book, I would say there's a video by The Bible Project. I think the, kid, the teens are going to watch it, actually. 
but they have this whole chart of what First Peter is all about. And what we see is that the main thing this is about is hope in the midst of suffering. That God's people, according to Peter, are, are misunderstood. They're living under the rule of a different king. And persecution or pressure <clears throat> offers a chance to show others the generous love of Jesus. He's going to get into this as they go. He doesn't tell them to fight back. He doesn't tell them to secure their own future. <laughs> he actually says you have a chance to show the generous love of Jesus and how you undergo this pressure and trial and persecution. Um, and it's interesting. If you talk about what was the primary method of evangelism in the early church, do you know what it was? Hmm? Martyrdom. Martyrdom. Um, time and time again, people would look on Christians and see them giving their lives for their faith, um, showing the generous love of Jesus and go, man, what is with these folks? And then it would plant a seed and later on it would lead uh, to faith. Now, I've never heard, I've been to a lot of evangelism classes in churches. I've never heard one on get persecuted and get killed get martyred and I'm not saying we should do that there's some weird stuff in the first centuries folks like search it you don't know um, uh, the pastoral letter says as far as it is possible for you live at peace with all men 